Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us together again this evening to speak to us through your word. We pray that it would be effectual in our lives. We pray that you would conform us more and more to the image of Jesus. We pray that it would accomplish everything that you've set out for it to accomplish. We pray that we would love you more dearly, hear you more clearly, and follow you more nearly every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, please be seated and turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Titus chapter 3. We're kind of jumping into the end of the book here. Paul is writing one of his final letters. He's writing to encourage Titus. He's writing to encourage the church in Christ and to warn the churches about the enemy's schemes. He addresses both doctrine and duty, uh, doctrine and life that we have. He addresses them in particular in the church, in the home, and in our lives. And it's really easy to forget the gospel. And Paul knows this well. He had planted the church in Galatia, and then they were quickly uh, forgetting it or distorting it or seeking to alter the gospel in one way or another. There are enemies without the church and enemies within the church, and Paul is writing to warn, and he's writing to encourage and to remind us of the doctrine, the good news. Heidelberg was, the Heidelberg Catechism was written by a pastor that wanted to comfort the congregation. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And then it goes on and tells us what it is that we need to know about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and how he's fully satisfied for all of our sins, and that the Holy Spirit has been given to us to assure us of that salvation and to cause us to make us to walk in his ways after him. And so the second question asks, what things must I know to live and die in this comfort? And it says quite simply, how great is my sin and misery, how I am set free from all my sins and misery, and how I'm to thank God for such deliverance. In other words, we often talk about that in terms of guilt, grace, and gratitude. And here we want to to look at three things today. We want to look at who we were, who we are, and how then should we live. Who we were in Adam, in our sins, who we are in Christ, And how then should we live in response to that? Guilt, grace, and gratitude. Sin, salvation, and service. In other words, our life in Christ. Before Christ, and then in Christ, and then now. If you've ever been to a carnival, and you've gone to those carnival mirrors, you recognize how they can distort you. Sometimes you can look really fat and out out of shape and awful. Sometimes you can look really tall and thin. Sometimes you can look warped in one way or another. It's interesting to stand in front of those mirrors and think about, well, what is reality? What do I really look like? And here scripture is telling us, Titus is telling us, and it's not necessarily the best picture that we would think of ourselves of who we were in our sin, but also I don't think we fully realize sometimes who we are in Christ and what a beautiful picture that is. And then it's talking about what we ought to do and how we should then live. So we want to look at those three things. Let's hear now the word of God, Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. It's really a lovely picture of how we ought to be in Christ and what a witness that would be to the world, right? But note what he says here. This is who we were. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. 
But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appear, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. So far, the reading of God's holy word. So here we want to look at these three things, really guilt, grace, and gratitude, who we were, who we are, and how then should we live. Quite simply, it says who we were. This is our guilt, the greatness of our sin and misery. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Not a very flattering picture, is it? You've probably seen Western movies, right, where they call someone a low-good, dirty, rotten scoundrel. (laughs) That's who we are in Adam. That's a faithful picture of our sin. It says that we were foolish. In other words, we lack spiritual understanding. We are unintelligent and we are dim-witted towards the things of the Lord. In our society, sometimes we think, well, we're spiritual, but we're not religious. Or we're spiritual, but we don't really believe anything in particular. And we have to recognize one of the reasons why Paul is writing to Titus is to say that spiritual is not enough. All roads except one lead to hell. The only road that doesn't lead to hell is the one through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the one by whom people must be saved. No matter how well-intentioned people are or how nice, they're foolish if it's not through Jesus Christ. In the context, Paul is warning them about foolish controversies and genealogies and dissensions and quarrels about the law. He says they are unprofitable and worthless. Right? This should end the interweb as we know it. Right? The internet is full of foolish controversies and genealogies and dissensions and quarrels about the law and things that are unprofitable and worthless. But Paul wants to placard before us the gospel of Jesus Christ, what is worth knowing and what is lovely and what is beautiful and what is true. Jesus Christ, plus or minus anything, is heresy. It's a false religion. If we try to add to Jesus, if it's Jesus plus our works, or Jesus plus our obedience, or Jesus plus our cooperation, or Jesus plus our our, our merit, then it's a false religion. And if it's not Christ, it's a false religion as well. Paul is trying to highlight the reality of our guilt and highlight the reality of our need for a gospel, the gospel. So he says, we ourselves, we were once foolish. We were disobedient. In other words, in relationship to God. R.C. Sproul once said that all sin is cosmic treason. It is disobedient and rebellion against God. It's willful and stubborn. Satan was the first one that we read about in Scripture who was rebellious against the Lord, and he was cast out of heaven along with his minions. 
Adam disobeyed the Lord willfully. He knew he shouldn't eat. He knew he shouldn't disobey the Lord, and he did. And all of us are, Scripture says, dead in Adam. We are lost. We are condemned in Adam. He was our federal head. As Adam went, so went the human race. And so the reality of Scripture, the reality that we're called to tell people is that God doesn't grade on a curve. He demands perfect righteousness, perfect holiness to be able to stand in the presence of of God. Scripture says if you disobeyed any one part of the law, you're guilty of the whole thing. It's really kind of heavy. And again, we need to get the reality of our sin and how great our sin and misery is in order to get the beauty of the grace and salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. So Paul's saying, you were not only foolish, we were not only disobedient, but we were led astray and deceived. Right? Disobedience is more willful on our part. We disobeyed what we knew to be true. We went against what God had revealed. But led astray and deceived means that someone tricked us as well. Satan was involved. Satan is the great deceiver. He's the one who went to Adam and started off by just being a bit of a cynic, right? Just trying to put in a little bit of doubt. Did God really say that you couldn't eat of this tree? And then later on, he changed his tactic. He said, God did not say. Then he flat out lied. But he started off simply by trying to deceive or distort or distract Adam and Eve from all the goodness that he had given them. He'd given them the entire garden to live in. And he just said, you can't eat of one tree. And Satan deceived them and made them think that that was stingy or that that was harsh or that they would be like God if they ate of it. But beloved, they were already like God. They were made in God's image. He was lying to them. He was deceiving them. He was tricking them and they bought it. And they went and they rebelled against God. And then it goes on to say, you were also enslaved to passions and pleasures. Right? Passion can be translated here as lust. Right? There's nothing inherently wrong with being passionate about things. As a matter of fact, the same word is used of Jesus when he was passionate about having the Passover with his disciples. But this idea is expressed uh, in the idea of something that's forbidden. Either wanting something that you ought not to have or you want it in an inordinate or unlawful way. James says it this way. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures." So this is saying we were foolish, we were disobedient, we were led astray, we were deceived, and then we were lustful. We were wanting things that God forbid us to have, or we were wanting things out of proportion. For instance, right, to have a a drink or to participate in sex, our gifts from God, but in certain contexts. We are allowed to drink, but not to get drunk. We are allowed to engage in sex with our spouse with our husband or with our wife but not just indiscriminately not whenever or however we want the passion and the desire for those things is good but only in the way that God has said otherwise it's sinful it distorts our relationship with the Lord and it distorts our relationship with others and then he said we are passing our days in malice and envy 
Malice really is kind of that idea of having a mean spirit or attitude, wishing others will, ill will. You really want someone to tank. You don't want them to do well. You don't, well, you don't want them to have good things. You're wishing evil upon someone. And envy is being jealous of the good things that God had given them. Because you want them yourself. You want your neighbor's house, your neighbor's spouse, your neighbor's money, your neighbor's opportunities, your neighbor's looks, your neighbor's whatever. It's not wrong to want any of those things. It's not wrong to want a spouse. It's not wrong to want to do well at your job. It's not wrong to want to be healthy. But when you envy someone else and you're jealous and it turns into sin, it, uh, it breeds contempt. It breeds hatred. We sometimes talk about a progression of sin that starts with a desire. And the desire could be for a good thing. But then when you don't get that desire, then you're disappointed. And then when you're disappointed, you start demanding that you have it. And then when you don't get that, then we start having damning behavior towards other people. We hate them in our heart, which God says is murder. And we see that progression of sin. That's what James is talking about. It's saying that we also hated. We hated God and we hated others. We were hated by people. We were loathsome. We were despicable. We were deplorable. We were deserving and despised and held in contempt, and we hated other people. Does this sound like mean spirit or or an exaggeration? (laughs) It can sound harsh, right? But this is the verbal portrait of our state, of who we are in Adam and our sin. We were without hope. We were slaves to sin. We were slaves to unrighteousness. Scripture says we were dead in our trespasses and sins, not just sick. And so Paul is reiterating this, said, don't be deceived. This is who you were. This is the greatness of your sin and misery. This is how bad it was. And beloved, note, if I just pause here, you're not to treat your neighbors like they're no good, dirty, rotten scoundrels. You are to love them. You are to serve them. You are to care for them and to point them to Christ because you recognize that if it weren't for his grace and his mercy in his life, you wouldn't have come to know these things. You wouldn't have been saved. You wouldn't have been reborn. You wouldn't have been forgiven. You wouldn't have been renewed either. You're just like them. We're more like them than we are different. And it's God's grace and mercy. So that's the bad news. This is who we were, Paul says. This is our guilt. This is the greatness of our sin and misery. Here is a portrait of who we are apart from Christ. But now, who we are. The second point, grace. How are we set free from our sin and misery? And note in verse 4 it says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That is good news. That's a breath of fresh air. That is life-giving. That is the gospel that's announced to you. You were all of these things, but God. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. If you don't take anything else away from the sermon, get that. The controlling verb of the text, the controlling thought, the controlling idea is that God saved you. 
And this is a faithful and a trustworthy saying that Paul is encouraging Titus. Don't forget this. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were lost. We were awful. We were dirty, rotten scoundrels, but God saved us. We needed saving because of our sin and misery, because of the deplorable state of our situation and our deadness. And we receive a complete salvation through Jesus Christ. We are saved to the uttermost. We are saved always in Christ through the Son by the Holy Spirit. And so note the text says, the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior has appeared. The hatred of who we said we were, right? We were hated and we were haters, is contrasted with the goodness and the loving kindness of God here. The goodness and loving kindness of God also isn't just a warm wish or an emotion that God has or a feeling, all of which is true, but it has a face, And it has appeared, and that face is Jesus Christ. It's the face of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared means Jesus. When he appeared, this is how God came to us, to save us, to send his own son, Jesus, and Jesus willingly came for us. It's not because of works done by us in righteousness. By works of the law, none of us would be righteous. None of us would be saved, but according to his own mercy. So who we were is a dirty, rotten scoundrel. Who we are is a new creature in Christ. We are beloved. We are saved. We are chosen. We are regenerated. We are forgiven. We are cleansed. We are adopted. We are indwelt. There's just an embarrassment of riches that we have in Jesus Christ. Everything that we need, he has provided. All of it. All of our salvation is given to us by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ. From the Father, in the Son, through the Holy Spirit. And so this is one of those great reversal passages of Scripture, or one of those great but God passages of Scripture, which are good for us to remember as Christians and what Heidelberg 1 is trying to get at. This is who you were, but this is who you are now. A couple other great but God passages that help highlight this one are Romans 3.21. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Ephesians 2 and Titus 3 are really helpful for us to remember as Christians if we ever want to share the gospel because it does such a great job of showing that guilt, grace, and gratitude pattern. This is who you were. Ephesians said you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were by nature a children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead, made us alive. It's not that we had to make ourselves alive or come to life ourselves or had to come to him. He came to us and he made us alive. He regenerated us. And that's what Titus is getting at here. It says it's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We were regenerated through the washing of regeneration through the Holy Spirit. In other words, we have a a new birth, a new genesis, a, a new beginning, a new life given to us. We were dead. We couldn't help ourselves, and we were regenerated. We were born again. 
You might remember Jesus in his conversation with Nicodemus said, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You have to be born again by the Holy Spirit. And we confess that the Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life, don't we? And so he's the one who gives us life. He's the one who causes us to come alive, to rebirth us, to regenerate us, to make us new in Christ. And so he regenerates us, but he also renews us. He conforms us more and more to the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. He doesn't just bring about new life in us, but he conforms us more and more to the image of Jesus so that we become like him. We look more and more like our Savior progressively throughout life as he sanctifies us. The note that it says that the Holy Spirit was poured out richly, not sparingly. The third person of the Holy Trinity was poured out on you so that who you were might no longer be true of you and that you would be and part of the new creation in Jesus Christ. And this giving of the Holy Spirit was something that was promised all along. In Ezekiel 36, God told the people, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanliness, and from all of your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove your heart of stone and... Uh, from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's radical. That's the gospel. We have a cold, dead, stone heart that hates God and hates our neighbor, who we were. And God comes and doesn't just do heart surgery, but he gives us a heart transplant. He takes away that cold, dead one that hates him and others, and he gives us a new heart, one that loves him and one that loves our neighbor. It's a gift. And he puts his own spirit within us to assure us of that salvation and to cause us to walk in his statutes, to be more and more like him. Paul goes on to say to Titus that we have been justified by his grace. We become heirs of eternal life. It says being justified, meaning that's happened already in the past tense. Having been justified, you are forgiven. Those of you who are looking to Christ Jesus, you are forgiven. You are justified. You are declared righteous. Christ's righteousness is what we say. It's imputed to you. It's credited to you. It's reckoned to you as if you had obeyed the law yourself. There is now no more condemnation for you. Nobody can bring any charge against you because Jesus Christ died for you. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for you. And you are his now and always. Our filthy rags were removed and he put on us a royal robe, a priestly robe of perfect righteousness and holiness, which is Jesus Christ. And then we find that we are adopted heirs. We're citizens of heaven. We're joint heirs with Jesus of the new heavens and the new earth. And so the passage wants to draw out who we were and now who we are. Sometimes we don't see ourselves quite like this because we recognize that we still struggle with sin, don't we? And we recognize that the pollution still clings to us. But there's a definitive break with the coming of Jesus Christ. And there's a definitive break with the coming of the Holy Spirit in your life that you are new. 
You are forgiven. You are justified. You are adopted. You are indwelt. You are being sanctified. You will be glorified. And there's nothing in all of creation that can ever stop that or change that. You belong to the Father in the Son through the Holy Spirit now and forever. It's meant to be a great comfort. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own. But I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has fully atoned for all of my sin. And he takes, me, takes away the tyranny of the devil, and I belong to him now and always. And he gives me the Holy Spirit to assure me of eternal life and to cause me to walk in the newness of life that I have in Christ. All the blessings that we have come to us. Our salvation from beginning to end is a gift. Guilt and then grace. And so then finally, how then do we live, right? The Apostle Paul anticipates that if the gospel is rightly preached, then people are going to say, well, then it doesn't matter how do we live, right? If I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ, it doesn't matter. And in Romans 6, Paul says, what shall we say to these things? Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? And he said, may it never be. How can you? (laughs) This isn't even who you are. You're not that sinner anymore. You are now a new person in Jesus Christ. This is how Paul puts it here. He says, this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable. Note the order. The grace came first. Now, those who have believed, in other words, believers, those who have true faith, those who are justified, those who are indwelt by the Spirit of God, those who are called before the foundation of the world are to bear fruit. Not for their salvation, from their salvation. Not for their salvation, but from their salvation. Just like God, when he created the universe, had two acts of creation in some sense, right? He said, let there be light, and there was light. And he said, let there be, and there was earth, and there was trees. And then he said, and then let them bring forth after their own kind. So that same speech of God is powerful in our salvation as well. He says, let there be a Christian, and there's a Christian. You're regenerated, you're reborn, you're new, you're alive, you were dead, you're now in Christ, you're forgiven, you're justified. And now to that Christian, he says, now bear fruit. And you do. You have to. You may bear more or less than your neighbors, but every Christian bears fruit. It's impossible for you not to because you've been grafted on to the true and living vine. And so Paul is not calling us to be something that we're not to, but to become more and more of who we are. We're part of the new creation. We're grafted on to the vine. The Holy Spirit is the one who is producing fruit in us. It's impossible for one grafted onto the vine not to bear fruit. This is who you are. You're a beloved child of God. And you are being formed more and more to look, to love, to live, and to act like your father in heaven and your elder brother in heaven through the Holy Spirit who's been given to you. And so we recognize, turn again, if you would, to Heidelberg 1. Turn to 872.
Here's what Paul wrote to Titus. He said, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's who you were. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's who we are. How then should we live? This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good work. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So let's do Heidelberg 1 one more time. Beloved, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live unto him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you don't pull any punches in telling us the rottenness and the ugliness of our sin. And we thank you that you don't leave us in our sin, but in your love and in your mercy and in your grace, you come to us through your son, Jesus Christ, that you sent him to pay the penalty for our sin, for our ugliness, for our hatred, for our foolishness, for our lying, for our envy, for our gossip, all of that. That Jesus Christ paid the penalty for on the cross, enduring the wrath that should have been poured out on us and dying a death that we should have. And we marvel at the reality that his righteousness, his obedience in all things, even to the point of death, is credited to our account as if we had done it. And Father, we didn't stumble on this on our own. We aren't wiser or smarter than our neighbors or more deserving, but by grace, through mercy, you came and you caused us to be born again through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. You've given us eyes to see. You've given us ears to hear. You've given us hearts that believe. And you've given us hands and feet that are willing to do your will now. And I pray that they would be even more so as you conform us more and more to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name, washed in his blood, clothed in his robe of righteousness and indwelt by your Holy Spirit that we pray. And all God's children said, amen.